0: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about his past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed al a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And with us today is Professor Divya Charyan, the author of Merchants of Virtue, Hindus, Muslims, and Untouchables in 18th Century South Asia published by University of California Press in 2023, and it's open access. And recently also uh, published in India by Navayana. The book is winner of the American Institute of Indian Studies 2022, Joseph Elder Prize in the Indian Social Sciences. Professor Divya Charian is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Princeton University. She's a historian of early modern and colonial South Asia with interest in social, cultural, and religious history, gender and sexuality, ethics and law, and the local and the everyday. Our research focuses on Western India, chiefly on the region that is today Rajasthan. Today, unlike uh, the usual podcasts that I have, which are about books, we will be diving into the captivating world of the owl and the occult, popular politics and social liminality in early modern South Asia published by the journal Comparative Studies in in Society and History in 2023. Historians of Islamic occult sciences and post-Mongol Persianite kinship in the Ottoman, Safavid, and Mughal empires have recently made clear just how central this body of knowledge was to the exercise of imperial power. Alongside, scholarship on Tantra has pointed to its diffuse persistence in the early modern period. But what dynamics beyond courts and elite initiates did these investments in occult science and Tantra unleash? Through a focus on the 17th century Mughal court and the Rajput polity of Marwar in in the 18th century, this article weaves together the history of animals with that of harmful magic by non-courtly actors. It demonstrates the blended histories of Tantra, Islamicate occult sciences, and folk magic to argue that attributions of liminality encoded people, animals, and things with occult potential. For some, like the owl, this liminality could invite violence and death, and for others, like expert male practitioners, it could generate authority. By the 18th century, the deployment of practical magic towards harmful or disruptive Ends was a political tool wielded not only by kings and elite uh, adepts uh, for state or lineage formation, but also by non-courtly subjects and, quote-unquote, low uh, caste uh, specialists in local social life. States and sovereigns responded to the popular use of harmful magic harshly aiming to cut off non-courtly access to this resource. The early modern age was one of new ideologies of universal empires. The deployment of occult power outside the court was inconsistent with the ambitions of the kings of this time. Welcome, uh, Devio, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your article.
1: Thank you for having me, Emma. This is a great
0: honor. The pleasure is mine. I really enjoy taking your seminar on early modern uh, India. And uh, in that seminar, I developed um, um, a paper, which ended, ended up uh, being my dissertation project on the occult sciences and the Western Indian Ocean. So I'm really excited for the publication of this article and really wanted to share it with a wider audience because I think it, it can uh, open up new conversations that uh, bring in... Uh, Islamic occult sciences, but also Indic Tantra traditions, which is not uh, something that have been the focus of historians. So this is really interesting and and groundbreaking research that I congratulate you on publishing. Uh, First, we would like to learn about the authors. I know you've given uh, an interview about your book uh, Book to New Books Network, but if you can say uh, about... uh, how you came to be interested uh, in the region of Rajasthan, being somebody from somewhere else in South Asia. What was it like for you to be on the verge of discovering a new culture, new language, and new traditions and archives in that region?
1: Great. Uh, thanks, uh, Emma. Then, yes, I do remember very fondly that seminar. I remember your paper. I was actually super excited about it. I had a feeling I was heading in this direction in my research so you know reading about this world of um, kind of an interface between nature agriculture and the occult as you did in that paper and you know as you're now doing for your dissertation uh, it was a really exciting thing for me to read as well so i'm very keen to see how your how your work grows um, in terms of my, uh, how uh, how it was, you know, getting to be familiar with a new region, uh, absolutely. So my mother is from the very north of India. She grew up in Kashmir. She's Kashmiri. And my father is from Kerala, uh, the deep south, uh, who grew up in Bombay, speaking Marathi and Malayalam. Uh, and I uh, grew up in Delhi, uh, speaking Hindi, actually, for the first, you know, eight or nine years of my life. Um, and uh, surrounded by a lot of Kashmiri speakers. Um, so I think when I never never would have imagined that I would go to Rajasthan, you know, Rajasthan was an interesting place to me as kind of a tourist site, as one of those few places, <clears throat> at least in North India, where a lot of the built fabric of the cities is preserved from you know pre-colonial times in the old cities, which Delhi, unfortunately, uh, did not have the good luck of having. That is a lot of the of pre-colonial Delhi was flattened uh, by the British in the aftermath of 1857. But, um, you know, that's how, Radhasan was just that for me. Um, It was really the kinds of archives, perhaps not coincidentally, just like the architectural heritage was preserved uh, and remain much more intact due to the particular trajectory of what became the princely states in colonial India. Um, Perhaps for similar reasons, a lot of the archives are are also quite well preserved. Um, And it was the, really the archival um, availability uh, that drew me to Rajasthan. Um, And after that, it was kind of, I would say, you know, a a love hate relationship (laughs) in that when I was a student, I had been keen on i was an avid hiker actually so i thought when i do research i will combine my love of the mountains with with historical work but uh, you know those kinds of archives were simply to my knowledge not available uh, and my questions became about the history of caste and you know the interface with state power um, i didn't i was not aware of those kinds of archives uh, in the mountains. So then my next choice was the beach. So I thought maybe I'll go to Goa, but again, like, you know, that that didn't pan out. So I was not thrilled to be in this desert <laughs> town, and Bikaner is really on the arid side of Rajasthan. Bikaner is the headquarters of the Rajasthan State Archives. But I think, um, I think you know, just living there, and I really um, It wasn't wasn't just an instrumental relationship with the region or with the archive where I was kind of, you know, um, sort of had cordoned off like that portion of my existence to like go into the archive and come out mechanically. I think I really enjoyed immersing in the culture of the region, um, you know, getting to know people of different generations and different social locations, getting to know the cuisine, uh, living, I lived with... um, students, uh, women's students in a women's dorm. Um, So I think it was this kind of holistic relationship with Bikaner um, where actually I have great memories like (laughs) of my time in Bikaner uh, that I think, you know, made the experience one in which it wasn't um, kind of an onerous thing like, oh, I have to learn this language. Uh, So I I personally really recommend like, you know, not just extracting, you know archival materials from a region I mean sometimes you can't help it I understand that due to personal uh, constraints or political or other instability in the region under study but if that's not a problem I think uh, it was genuinely an adventure uh, and also this archive was so rich I remember so I talked to my mom like every day so I would call her every day and I'd be like this is what I found today, and this is what I found today, you know, so the it was so rewarding that it it just kind of seamlessly happened that I learned this completely new uh, language and script for my research.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I can definitely relate because sometimes people assume that if you are from the region or the, the nation state, then you would be familiar with the rest of the country, which is not the case, especially in India. It's a vast territory with hundreds and hundreds of languages and cultures, so even for South Asianist um, to be an expert on certain region, it really speaks about long uh, training and learning and immersing uh, in the culture and the archives of that region. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, As the author of Merchants of Virtue, uh, what drew you to to explore the early modern specifically? What aspects of this period intrigued you the most? And how did your research for the book intersect with your research and interest uh, in the occult sciences?
1: Uh, um, I think, and I've said this elsewhere, I think first and foremost, it was growing up in Delhi where a lot of, and here again, maybe I'm I'm referring to that kind of built fabric from pre-colonial times. So a lot of that survives in Delhi, you know, and I grew up in a part of Delhi where there actually were a lot of like, not even well-preserved ruins. They were just kind of neglected, marked off ruins. Um, And of course, there were other more well-preserved ones like the Qutub Minar uh, that were not far. So I think growing up in Delhi, I was always attuned to India's pre- modern uh, past. Um, And then as I came to read about it in the classroom, it only opened up my interest more. Um, Then I think uh, probably it was maybe you know i grew up in in india with intensifying um, hindu muslim conflict uh, the rise of the hindu right to unprecedented power um, i think then again like this time in india's past when uh, muslims ruled india and when um, you know uh, uh, the, that same period was being demonized and kind of was mo- being mobilized as one of the grounds on which uh, the uh, uh, sort of the harms of the hindu right were being justified um, I think that also perhaps, uh, you know, made me more curious about, well, what is this period that these, sorry, that these people are representing uh, as they are, you know, to the broader public? Uh, I think that uh, perhaps also fueled my interest. Um, And the third was that everybody seemed to gravitate towards modern South Asia. Uh, you know, those among my friends and classmates who chose to do uh, history at at an advanced level and had to choose which period they would specialize in, uh, most of them were drawn to modern South Asia. So maybe there was a slight like rebel in me where I was like, I I don't want to do this time period. And some of that also went back to the curriculum uh, at the undergraduate level, which was really very, very, at that time in Dell University about like the rise of the national movement. Um, You know, it was kind of like a the history of the nation, you know, and there was a lot of economic history, um, questions of social history, even though there was, of course, a wealth of research that existed, the curriculum did not um, highlight those. So I was like, oh, this period is just not that interesting to me. Uh, and so I, uh, again, you know, was uh, that drew me towards the, the, this kind of uh, Mughal, what was then broadly understood as the Mughal and Delhi Sultanate periods of South Asian history. Uh, so I don't know if I I think I answer your question Yeah those would be the factors
0: Yes uh, listening to you and about your uh, upbringing in Delhi reminded me of the book uh, Genealogy I don't know if you came across it tying yes, Islamic ecological probably. thought Yeah by Anand uh, Tanja um, I recommend the listeners to check it out um, if you, they are interested about how to live among Delhi's ruins um, and be cult as well. Um, yes. But before delving uh, in the owl and the occult, what do we mean by the occult powers, sciences, and tantra in the South Asian context? And ca- how can historians incorporate them in their historical studies? So
1: um, that is a very big question, and I don't even think there's obviously a simple answer, right? Like, um The occult is a term that comes, it's an English language term, right? It has a particular meaning. In the West, so can we so simply, or even a term like magic, you know, can we very seamlessly apply uh, those terms to non-Western contexts uh, without, you know, critical work. Uh, absolutely, I think there are a lot a lot of things that might be lost in uh, translation, but I have used the term uh, mainly as a bridge to uh, conversation about the occult. It is also a nod to the fact that uh, sort of the Eurasian African worlds were deeply interconnected um, culturally with long roots of criss-crossing cross-fertilization, right? Um, so even though the, you know, using an English language term may privilege the particular baggage that that term carries in the West, um, I do feel that there are ways in which uh, different kinds of occult traditions were in a very long and slow conversation with each other um, across this world. So maybe it's also not to that, but what does it mean for South Asia? So I would say that at least in, in the way that I've worked with it, um, I would say there might potentially be, you know, three nodes, uh, that, um, build into this world, um, that seeks to, uh, Access and channel uh, forces that are beyond the perception of the five senses, right? Uh, what we might call the supernatural. Um, and there is uh, in uh, in Arabic and in Persian the term "unseen" does denote, which is which is also the literal meaning of occult or, or hidden. Um, that same exact word is used to denote uh, these types of forces. So, um, so, so I would say there are three traditions or three nodes that that stood out to me at least as I was doing the foundational work for this article. Uh, one is the kind of Islamicate um, sciences, uh, the Islamicate occult sciences. Uh, the other would be the uh, 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 the kind of uh, overlapping world with Tantra, and that is an overlap that I would say goes into the medieval past. It's not a new overlap in the early modern period that this article is focused on. There's already uh, conversations between Tantra practitioners and, and Islamicate uh uh, science practitioners and experts uh in the medieval past um so so one is so but still I I would take tantra as kind of a node um for feeding into um the the kind of um you know um occult as as it exists in south asia and the third and this is the most perhaps um uh shall I say uh, undefined one and where there perhaps is a lot more work to be done is this idea of the folk Uh, The folk occult, which is this recognition that not all the theorizations uh, about occult practice and occult philosophies are coming from expert um, men uh, who are trained in uh, or initiates into um, uh, lineages that are grounded in uh, generations of textual learning. That there are practitioners and maybe also lineages or some kinds of communities of practitioners that are not a kind of a uh, text-based, you know, uh, group uh, that are much more, you know, oral, uh, that kind of slip through the, the, you could say the net of the historian because they they have not generated their own body of textual materials left behind, but they have left traces. And here, I think it's uh, Michael Ulrey's work that I'm really thinking of, but they have left traces in the Textual accounts left behind by elite practitioners, uh, as you know, uh, in the ways in which they incorporate or engage with uh, th- those bodies of knowledge. Um, so, I would say these would be kind of the three nodes of the, of the occult um, in South Asia. Um, and in the case of perhaps Tantra, there's an added element compared to what I described about sort of the unseen uh, realm, right? Uh, which is in the case of South Asia, Tantra traditions often. Uh, push against or, or or stand at a distance from, uh, you know, the Veda, for example, like there is this uh, idea in Tantra traditions that through certain uh, practices, certain exercises, and certain forms of discipline, and which generally also entail, uh, you know, a teacher, that you can, in a way, become a uh, god or godlike, right? And that is something that the mainstream Ramanical traditions would not uh, 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 ascribe to. And there's also in certain kinds of Tantric ritual an an intentional uh, breaking of taboo, like things that are not permitted by the Brahminical tradition uh, are in fact prescribed by the Tantric uh, tradition or or certain streams within the Tantric tradition. So in the case of Tantra, which I think perhaps is not the case with the Islamic occult sciences, in the case of Tantra, there is kind of a tension with mainstream, what I'm calling right now,
0: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ali.com. That's O-L-L-Y ycom These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right. And and, and in addition to that, you also have the bone tradition, which is shamanistic, animistic um, mm-hmm. traditions practiced in the Himalaya, which is mm-hmm. also a binary with Buddhism. So it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating how these, uh, you know, different practices intersect. Um, mm-hmm. When we read uh, the early modern uh, period and the the, the three uh, gunpowder empires, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the, and the Mughals, um, we read about the emergence of um, uh, messianic and uh, millenarium movements uh, fostering uh, occult sciences and their patronage at these courts. And in your article, you also argue that we should uh, think of um, smaller polities and uh other uh for political formations uh adjacent to these empires um why do you think that's important to include in the historiography uh of the occult sciences and the early modern
1: well um and here you know it also goes back to the question you asked me about my kind of formation as a as a historian i think i was always um and that might have also you know, spoken to my kind of um, lack of interest in modern history as I initially encountered it, which is I was always curious about how do how do non-elite groups respond to, how do they participate in, how do they shape the historical processes that we study? Now, of course, this is a very common question, right? I mean, there's been this kind of impulse among historians for a long time, uh, but yes, I just wanted to say that for me, that was uh, that was always a question. So I think there are there could be a number of reasons why I think it is important to look beyond courts um, and look beyond M- the the high imperial level, right? Like to shift attention uh, to regional polities. So one would be simply uh, kind of where is the historiography leading us? And here I'm thinking of, for example you know, in Aspar Mohin's work or in uh, Matthew Melvin Kushki's work, uh, there is this reference to there being actually a popularization of the occult sciences in the early modern period, uh, kind of alongside the uptake by uh, Islamic imperial sovereigns um, in kind of channeling and, and sponsoring uh, occult expertise within their court. But I think, again, as a result of the source material, uh, that the scholarship has engaged uh, largely, uh, especially for the pre- pre-modern, right, for the pre-19th uh, century period, scholarship has been able to engage either with court activities, right, experts at court the king's sponsorship of participation in refashioning as uh, you know occult experts um so there's been that stream or there's been uh, there's been the study of the kind of the technical materials of uh, produced by um, you know occult scientists shall we say uh, so those have so it's been at that kind of uh, high cultural production, right? And that, as I said, is a result of uh, the limitations of the source materials and is in itself, let me add a historical breakthrough, right? For a long time, this aspect of early modern imperial formation had been neglected. So this in itself has been a breakthrough. Um, However, as I said, one observation made by both these scholars, at least if not others, is that there was simultaneously a popularization of the occult uh, sciences. So how do we get at uh, at that uh, popular realm uh, became uh, an important question to me. uh, And also, um, I think it is just, uh, just as it has been neglected or it had been neglected at the high imperial level This is an aspect of political life, social life, um, cultural life in uh, everyday pre-modern South Asia that has similarly uh, been neglected at the sub-imperial levels, at the regional uh, levels. And again, you know, there have been others like um, Emma Flatt's work on the Delhi Sultanate. Uh, sorry, on the decani uh, Sultanates, um, it does pay attention to the ocarp So again, at the regional level, also it has happened. But even her work has focused on courtly uh, production and courtly uh, engagement. So my thrust has been, and here I will say that it was not something I planned to do. That I will make this breakthrough. My sources gave me access to, an even you could say lower level in terms of you know structures of power. Uh, Um, uh, of of, of occult activity in pre-colonial South Asia, uh, which was the level of, you know, non-courtly actors. So people who would still actually be relatively, some of them would still be relatively wealthy, uh, but they were not involved with with even this regional uh, court. So I think uh, for me, it is an important and well, shall we say unseen uh, aspect of South Asia's uh, pre-modern past, um, going beyond expert practitioners and going beyond kings, uh, that uh, we simply must explore in order to get a fuller sense of the life worlds of uh, people uh, in the pre-colonial non-West and here, South Asia.
0: Yes, indeed. And uh, in addition to that, most of these histories were written based on these, um, let's say, uh, courtly patronized sources like chronicles and and, and and poems or treatises and manuals rather mm-hmm. than uh, legal cases. Um, so can you talk about the archival discovery of the legal case that you investigate in this article and narrate the history around? And uh, how did you come across this case? And then how did you think about employing it in writing, let's say, a microhistory? Uh, based on that case? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so some of this is, you know, um, the, the methodologies come from the kinds of archival materials one has one has found, right? So the microhistory, if one could call it that, like I feel like my work, even my book, are kind of a tapestry of microhistories, you know, where I am kind of juggling like the ideal microhistory would be if I had a lot of information about a particular micro case. In in the nature of the sources that I have, I have this snippet of information about a micro case and then it never comes up again, you know. But that snippet in itself, because precisely that it gives you insight into that micro realm that is so rare and difficult to find, I would say, uh, is important, you know. And so for me, my work often entails a kind of weaving together of lots of micro uh, cases, you know, micro histories. So it's almost micro histories plural that that I do. So even in this article, there is a case that I lead with because this is the case that I think that led me into this world, and this is a case in which I, uh, you know, found that there is. I mean, what surprised me about the case is, and I'll. Just just you know, lay out my my sort of initial uh, what drew me into this this particular question is that there is um, a, a person who commissions an occult expert uh, to uh, use owls meat to control someone's mind to subjugate someone mentally or psychologically, right? And um, then when this reaches the state authorities in this kingdom, uh, in 18th century Rajasthan, the kingdom of Marwar, uh, they immediately uh, get these two people arrested, beaten, and there is urgency to kind of make sure they are properly and fully punished, There it should be no laxity. So to my mind, and maybe this was a very elementary question, that in a world in which everybody believes in the supernatural, right, this, this is not like some uh, you know, late 19th century, 20th century sort of science-minded state that says this is wrong because it is superstitious. That's clearly not what's going on here. So what is it that makes this magical act so egregious and immediately and urgently punishable uh, by this state. So this was really what stood out to me. And as to how I came upon it, it was in the course of research for my first book, where my sources are not organized by theme or topic. So these were long, you know, running registers in which I had to go case by case. And that was also the nature of, of the very broad question that my first project asked, which is, you know, what is the history of Caste in pre-colonial South Asia was my sort of very broad question. So I literally was like, I have to look at every caste <laughs> in every case. I'm including economy, politics, religion, everything in my frame, right? So I went case by case by case, and I would occasionally find things that I did not see a direct correlation with my work at that time. But I was like, okay, this is truly weird, and I must, you know, copy this down to keep for future reference. So the hour, this one stayed with me. I'm like, is it the use of the owl? that is a problem? Uh, what is going on here? you know And this was also let me add for anybody who might be familiar with the my research in my first book, uh, I thought at first I thought it could be because there is an owl that has been killed. and this kingdom was in these same decades uh, enforcing a ban on um, violence towards animals, which obviously also then included meat eating. So I was like well this owl was killed perhaps for this ritual and that is the problem. So this is, this was sort of the broad moment of, shall we say, uh, archival discovery as you framed it, uh, but certainly the curiosity was stirred in me by this case and these questions.
0: Right, and I really appreciate how you blended also history of animals and environmental history and writing about this uh, case. Uh, can you say more about the role of owls and ritual practices, particularly in Tantra? And the reasons behind their sacrificial use.
1: Yeah, so um, so this exactly. So I sort of broke down this reference into like multiple possibilities, right? And so the owl emerged doesn't as an, as an important one, and that is what kind of uh, you know because I had I, I think at least one other uh, source in which the meat of the owl is used for a ritual of mind control, also in eighteenth century uh, Rajasthan. And uh, there too, the state swings into action and makes sure that everybody involved is like suitably punished and the punishment is quite harsh by the standard of the state. So again, I was like, um, you know, clearly there is something about the owl um, that is uh, that is of, of significance over here. And that is when I uh, looked into it and I realized that there is, uh, in Tantra, uh, not not only the owl, actually. There are many uh, creatures that are associated with, whose flesh, when combined with particular ritual incantations and other sort of tantric formulae, uh, can unleash uh, to the person who carries out the ritual or perhaps the sponsor of the ritual, uh, uh, you know, particular powers. And in Tantra, there is this idea of the six... uh, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of, uh, you can say. Let me just look it up. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so, 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 six um, uh, kind of harmful deeds. Okay, and the six is a notional number in the sense that it doesn't actually have to mean like which precise six are included uh, can vary. And um, in this case, uh, one of those sort of six uh, things is clearly always subjugation, and others include things like death uh, or murder, um, and and they're all, you know, um, uh, kinds of magic that are not uh, what one perhaps in certain kinds of scholarship on Tantra associates much more with Tantra in its heyday, right, which is kind of facilitating uh, kings in like uh, you know having beneficial outcomes for the kingdom so that is also a kind of sort of supernatural control that occult experts could 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 command and could re- get sponsorship for but then there's a much more like practical magic right which is a term in tantra scholarship which is totally everyday Uh, magic applied to immediate ends, which can be harmful. Um, And so the owl's meat shows up as a ritually useful product uh, in those harmful kinds of magic, along with other kinds of uh, ritual material. So one was that. uh, Then the second was um, that I began to then find other places in which the owl shows up in uh, just, you know, as a, as an important um, site of um, um, representation in uh, pre-colonial South Asia. And for me, uh, one very obvious place was this painting that was commissioned by uh, Jahangi, which is called Jahangi Shoots Malik Ambar, uh, painted by Abul Hassan around 1616, uh, which is in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. Uh, it's quite a famous painting right in 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 which there is there's been a lot written about it because malik ambar Uh, the person whose sort of severed head Jahangir is shooting with an arrow in this painting, Malik Ambar is also quite a fascinating historical figure. So between writing about Jahangir, writing about Malik Ambar, and then Mughal painting, a lot has been said about this painting. Uh, And the person who's really looked upon it from the perspective of what you just mentioned earlier, which is the patronage of the occult sciences by early modern Islamic uh, kings, The person who's looked upon it from that perspective is Azfar Moin, who talks about how this was part of the kind of the what he calls sort of the millennial. Uh, sovereignty uh, that was first given form by um, Akbar for South Asia, and then, I mean, he traces a whole journey, right, Uh, from even before Akbar, but he shows how it was particularly manifested in painting uh, in Jahangir's time. So, I I incorporate that painting as well, because there are owls featured in that painting, sitting on um, Malik Ambar's impaled head, and one that has also been killed and is kind of impaled on the same spear as Malik Ambar. And there are little uh, inscriptions in Persian on uh, this painting, and so I, of course, I build on uh, Aswad Muin's analysis as well as uh, Yael Rice, uh, whose new book on Mughal painting is out, uh, to then say that we must pay attention to these verses. That alongside the painting, uh, the the verses are uh, you know challenge, channeling uh, occult energy. That it is not just a representation of kingship but it is a talismanic uh, object that is meant to wish upon, uh, to kind of maybe even actualize uh, for uh, Malik Ambar, uh, this kind of wish for death and destruction, uh, uh, you know, that that Jahangir uh, hopes to see uh, happen to him. So so it was the Mughal painting as well in which we see similarly a kind of, and then I traced how in Persianate poetry as well, the owl had a particular symbolism uh, as being uh, a bearer of ill, and death, and and all of that. And I similarly find that uh, in South Asian culture as well, uh, there is this kind of negative association uh, with the owl, uh, which continues today, where there is this idea that if you sacrifice uh, the owl um, on some particular nights leading up to Diwali, and I think also Holi, Uh, then you will find uh, that, um, you know, things you wish for will come true. So this, I think, is something that continues uh, into the present, uh, this kind of association with the owl. So it's not just a distant, like, bad omen, like, oh, I saw an owl and that's bad luck, but you also want to control the flesh of the owl uh, through ritual means today uh, in South Asia. Not not everyone, clearly, but in a country of 1.4 billion, even a small number of people who believe in this would not be would not be too little, um, you know. So people who still want to use the owl's flesh to um, kind of you know see the uh, realization of particular goals, so that exists to, today as well.
0: I hope these people watch Harry Potter to change their views of the owl and find it a cute animal. Uh, uh, yeah,
1: that's a really interesting question, like the cutification of the owl. How did that happen? When did that happen? You know? Yeah.
0: Right, Uh, I'm fascinated by this concept of uh, liminality and you apply it not not just to the apple but also to the practitioners Um, how do you deploy this concept and how is it useful to understand uh, the status of uh, these different actors?
1: So yeah, I think when I began to think through um, what is going on here, because in the article, then I trace uh, that beginning with the owl, uh, what I did was to bring together all the different references I had to this uh, state, um, uh, punishing people uh, for performing magic or people approaching the state due to disputes that arose uh, involving the use of Uh, Magic, Right. And I'm happy to explain what I mean, what terms are used for what I'm calling uh, magic. So when I put these together, I noticed that there were essentially um, two kinds of actors or you could say three kinds of actors that were playing an important role. So one was the Jain monk. One was the Muslim weaver. It's a particular cast of weavers that in North India are known as Julahats. uh, But in this region, it's a slight variation is Julava. So Muslim weavers, Jain monks or Yatis um, and the owl. So these three types of actors seem to play an important role. And when I thought more and more about it, actually thinking out of the owl, what is it about the owl that perhaps caused humans to impart to it? Uh, this special like what I call occult fecundity kind of a sort of a, uh, you know, kind of a thriving, you know, vessel for occult power that can then be channeled. Uh, And really what stands out about the owl is the fact that it lives on the edge right, between the seen and the unseen, right? The unseen being the the occult. It lives on the edge. Why the edge? Because humans generally would spot it being a nocturnal creature at a time between night and day, whether it is dawn or dusk. And in fact, even in Jahangir's memoir, which uh, is on, there's a particular day on the eve of a campaign upon the Deccan, he spots this owl at dusk. And there are other references as well. Uh, Similarly, owls are sometimes associated with ruins, places that used to be inhabited, but are today uh, or or at the time of, whenever the source was composed, desolate. Uh, So these are spaces that kind of are between life and death. Uh, The owl is also perhaps liminally somewhere perceived as between human and non-human because of the nature, like the flat nature of its face, uh, which resembles much more the face of a a human. And also the the kind of weird way in which it can turn its its head to like sort of this unprecedented degree. So, um, uh, and perhaps, this is relevant for South Asia, but it also is a predatory uh, bird, right? It it eats uh, flesh. So um, I think all of these qualities about the owl placed it in in this kind of border space, right? What is the liminal? Neither here nor there. Um, And so once I started thinking about the owl in that way, I came to realize that what perhaps also defines the weavers and the Jain monks who are similarly associated with occult expertise uh, is a kind of liminality uh, with the monks being, uh, actually these particular kinds of Jain monks under discussion were actually on the border between fully initiated monks and lay people. They were also constantly circulating, moving around. So they were kind of outsiders to the community. Um, And similarly, Uh, The Muslim weavers as well were on the margins of caste society, so they were not entirely in some ways untouchable, like they were not the lowest of the low, but they were low caste, right? Uh, They were kind of lowly. Uh, But their occult expertise made them desirable among high caste uh, practitioners, uh, which are the kinds of cases I have where mercantile actors hire Muslim weavers to carry out particular kinds of magic for them. Uh, And uh, and there are a few cases of that kind that I was able to find. So I figured that there is something about being liminal about being marginal uh, but 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 neither fully out nor fully in that perhaps is important in the attribution of uh, magical power to to beings but it plays out differently uh, for different such beings, where uh, certain kinds of, uh, and, and this is where I introduce uh, you know social hierarchy, which is a running concern in my in my work. That if you are an elite male practitioner, that liminality becomes a source of power uh, to you, even if you sometimes run up against the state. But if you are uh, a Muslim weaver, if you are an owl, uh, that can become the cause of social violence or physical violence in the and for the owl. Uh, death. And where I plan to take this is that I'm also interested in ways in which women uh, were accused of, um, you know, magic or occult practice. And and what forms of liminality then shape uh, the experiences of women practitioners or or women associated with the occult um, is is where I think I see this uh, going.
0: I was actually going to ask you about uh, the gendered aspect of these practices, and I'm glad that you're following uh, up on that. Uh, but since you're a historian, also an expert on the history of caste, how does it feature uh, in terms of who who's entitled to wield the equal powers and why um, the courtly, uh, let's say, subjects were uh, really keen on uh, preserving and monopolizing uh, that?
1: Yeah, so... There, I think I um, in in as So then, yeah. So that brings us to this question of well, why is uh, this state punishing these practitioners, right? And that is where I felt that uh, I, I couldn't see um, uh, caste in a simple way right now playing a role because uh, the state was actually just as concerned with the Jain practitioners uh, who were elite caste men, uh, as it was with, uh, I mean, in some ways, actually, the state was more concerned with the elite caste gens than it was with the Muslim weavers. Uh, and it was not quite as, it would punish that magic, but not quite as urgently, not quite as harshly as it did the Jain the uh, experts magic, right? And so I think that for me, the dynamic there, it's really about worldly power, where uh, in a world in which everybody, believes in you know the the efficacy of supernatural powers uh, this was a site of contention where perhaps the state took much more seriously the kinds of expertise the gen Uh, practitioners had. And that is where I also trace out the differences between the kinds of magic the Muslim weavers are involved in and the kinds of magic the Jain experts are involved in, where the Muslim weavers seem to be involved much more with health-related matters, where if somebody has fallen ill or you want someone to fall ill because you want bad things to happen to them, you hire the the, um, Muslim weaver. But if you want uh, something like mind control, which is where which is where I found, or other you know the more tantric like six acts kind of things that I talked about, and the six acts are uh, um, uh, I would say some examples are Utsadhan, which is destruction causing enmity vidveshan, expulsion, or, or uchatan, stambhan, causing paralysis, uh, maha hani karan, causing great ruin, and maran, or killing. Now, these are uh, the kinds of six acts. We want that kind of work done, you hire a gen expert, right? So it seems that this body of knowledge was more or more concerned to the state. And that is where I simply think the state wanted control over uh, who got, to, it wanted to be, it wanted to be the force in society that could um, command and control these types of experts, uh, is what I said. The other possibility, which I also explore and is perhaps related, is the rise of um, you know, Krishna devotion, or Vaishnav Bhakti, in this in this time period, uh, which historically was kind of a rose uh, in contention with Tantra, right? Uh, his, uh, Bhakti s- situated itself as being. Uh, against or kind of counter or anti-tantra, a different path in which you would not, you would be kind of a servant to God. You would bow before God. You would not dare to do exercises that channel the powers of God into you. You might be able to do miraculous deeds, but that's because God blessed you, right? Because you were such a good devotee. So in that path, at both the discursive level as well as in terms of competition for patronage, there was a kind of rivalry with Tantra. So it is very possible, perhaps, that that is also uh, playing a role in the kind of... Uh, Sort of the the more urgent attacks against Jain tantra, uh, where the state and the Vaishnava Jain merchants that man it um, are trying to weed out those forms of uh, being Jain that perhaps are not as uh, desirable uh, as they used to be before the kind of ascent and dominance of the Vaishnava way uh, of being of being. So those are kind of the two things I pull out as to why the state is um stamping down magic, or at least magic by some people and not
0: others. Right. So magic becomes politicized and become uh one of the tools that not just the uh empires wield but also the smaller uh you know polities uh in South mm-hmm. Asia are also mm-hmm. invested in. Mm-hmm. That's very fascinating. Exactly. And 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 it's this
1: kind of magic, like the harmful magic that is coming from Tantra rather than the things about making your neighbor sick (laughs) that seem to be more (laughs) more concerned to to the state.
0: Right. Uh, This is very useful. I'm actually writing about hyenas and I was wondering if you have seen hyenas in these cases as well.
1: No, but it would be, well, I don't think we have hyenas in South Asia, uh, but it could be some other similar uh, sort of... uh, creature, you know, uh, a scavenger, right. scavenger creature that maybe there could be.
0: Right. Right. And, 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 the, and yeah, they're also, uh, uh, the practice of using hyenas is also gendered and they are a lot of connections to be made with the owl. And uh, so this is very useful in my case, and I hope others, uh, will pick up uh, this article and, uh, really enjoy the, the narrative flow and the clear writing, uh, uh, which is very useful to think about, uh many questions related not only to what we have discussed in this podcast, uh, but others I wouldn't like to uh, spoil and leave them as uh, discoveries for the listeners to go and experience themselves. Um, who do you hope will will read this article and what sort of conversations would you like it to start?
1: Um, really? It was it just began as like a compassion project. <laughs> like one of those things you write because you know you build these 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 references. so so I was not very intentional as to which particular audience um, I would aim for, but I would perhaps uh, some audiences that do come to mind, uh, are uh, I tried to build some bridges with the literature on early modern Europe and the actually very similar regulation of non-courtly magic um, in Europe as well in this same time period. Um, I, I, I hope for think- historians thinking comparatively um, in this same time period it would be of interest, hence I, I the home for this uh, article in Comparative Studies in Society and History I hope, you know, helps me reach that kind of audience. And then much more centrally, I was hoping, as I have done in the framing of the article, that historians of Persianate uh, empires in the early modern period, um, and kind of the, in the wake of the collapse of the larger empires or new kinds of developments in the 18th century in particular, uh, before the European colonial uh, conquest of large parts of Asia really took off. uh, I hope that it would be of interest to them, obviously, outside of South Asia, this might Look very different. Um, but I think that would be my uh, other major audience. And the third would be uh, historians of um, Jainism and of Tantra. I very much hope, like, obviously, there are very, like, especially the, stud- the study of both those fields is very, very technical, you know. So for me, I feel almost like intellectually I took a risk in kind of uh, wading into that literature to draw from it, to be in dialogue with it, and to speak to it, uh, because as I said, it's a very technical uh, literature, but I very much hope that for historians of those fields, again, Tantra, Jainism, that my, my perspective, which is from kind of a lived history, of uh, tantra and of Jainism, uh, that it might speak to them to then perhaps look back upon what they are seeing at the textual uh, uh, level in manuals and such like um, in the 18th century. So those would be, I think, the the, the three. And of course, uh, I should add, like I I did wade into animal studies, and one thing that has perhaps dropped out is that I did I I, I tried to think through what is what is it about you know, non-human human relations in this period that um, I can see in my materials, and there I feel like historians have, have been paying attention to relations that uh, humans had with non-humans, but this has been in the form for South Asia of largely prestige animals, horses, elephants, you know, uh, which, are impo- which is of course an important thing to study, but what about these other kinds of animals that were not companions, that were not prestige animals, and what particular kinds of work relationships did humans have with them? Uh, And so I very much hope that for that field, that is the human, -human, non-human relationships around the world, there's something here, a different kind of um, animal Um, or or non-human that I I hope will be of interest.
0: Are we going to see more uh, magical works in the future by you? Uh, Are you hoping to take this further and develop it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is the beginning and exploration for my next book project uh, in which I am I would say the running arc is the relationship between uh, humans and the supernatural um, and how sort of agglomerations of human power, such as the state um, or you know, this construct called society, how does that interface with, how does it relate to um, this world of the supernatural? And how does that relationship with the supernatural in turn determine human relations of power, be they gender, be they caste, uh, be they state forms. Uh, That uh, is what I'm going to explore in my next book project, which takes me from uh, the 18th century pre-colonial to the end of the 19th century, uh, which is colonial, uh, with a focus on the broad region of Western India. Right now I'm interested in expanding beyond Marwar into uh, the Kingdom of Udaipur, which is a bit uh, to the southeast, uh, as well as to parts of Gujarat and Madhya Pradesh um, as well, kind of the southern tip of the Aravali, it's more more like a fan of the Aravali mountains, a kind of an ecological borderland. Um, And I think I will in particular pull out the sort of caste gender tribe um, correlation, which really goes through massive transformation uh, in that transition from pre-colonial to colonial. So I know all of this sounds abstract, but magic is very much the central thread where I will also be unpacking what do English language terms like magic, witchcraft, uh, and occult, uh, how can we use them without erasing their particular social and conceptual histories um, in South Asia? So yes, this is the beginning of something new.
0: Sounds wonderful, and I'll be looking forward to the fruition of your project and having you again, hopefully, on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your beautiful article with the listeners. And uh, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Professor Divya Charian's new article, The Owl and the Occult, Popular Politics and Social Liminality in Early Modern South Asia, published in Comparative Studies in Society and History, and 2023. This is your host, Ahmed El Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.